Welcome to Creation Conversations with Joe Hubbard and John Mackay. Join us each week as we answer your questions and common objections to the Bible, creation, and Noah's flood. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good morning, good evening, good afternoon, wherever you are around the planet. Welcome back to Creation Conversations. Obviously, myself and John Mackay are here, but we're also joined once again by our good friend Sam Jenkins, who as well as actually uh, looking after the chat and so on and so forth tonight, he's also going to be joining in a little bit as well for this rather controversial topic. We're dealing with the uh, question of when should a Christian disobey a government or their government. And I think, John, you were mentioning to me the other day, you've not had this question asked this much ever since, like, the Vietnam War. Yes, well, being the most senior juvenile president, uh, it's a long time since Vietnam and university days, and it was really a big issue. I hadn't long been a Christian, and uh, in reality, people said, well, should we sign up? Can they force us to go? We didn't vote for this war. Why should we bear uh, the burdens of it? Now you've got a similar thing. Has the government got the right to jab us? Can they tell our kids without asking us permission? Uh, Can they authorise them to be gender changed without even considering what mum and dad want? So this issue has risen up big time again. And, And as I said, I haven't had as many people asking or emailing, help, what should we do? So that's the background of this. And I've been preaching on the subject. Um, Usually, um, you know, it's it's a controversial. There's no doubt about it. It's provocative. So, yeah, that's where we're at. Great stuff. Great stuff. Well, we've already got a great audience tonight already. And some chats, uh, things are coming through the chat. So thank you. Remember, everybody, to uh, Adam and Sam, getting brownie points from Sam here. Remember to like and subscribe if you haven't already. Uh, Particularly liking this video and sharing it really does help us. Uh, in a big way here with creation research and the work that we're doing. It spreads it out a lot, lot better. But before we get into this rather wonderful and controversial topic, John, let's uh, let's give everybody a bit of a ministry update as to what we've been doing in the last little while, because I wasn't here last week, as most of you probably know. Um, John, why don't you give us a, a start? What have you been up to? Okay, I've sent you over some pictures, uh, because this has been a Jurassic Ark week. Uh, sort of I ran out of time at the office and catching up those things. And then on uh, since Thursday, uh, we've been at Jurassic Ark because remember, we're one day ahead of you folks over course, there. Yeah. And by the <laughs> way, I'm broadcasting from a totally different place at the moment. You'll see behind me is a window and it's all foggy. Um, my signals are very weak one up here at uh, Gympie, which is way away from big country, big, uh, big city. So if I disappear sometimes, which... <laughs> doesn't happen i'm near jurassic arc out in out in the bush but in reality we sort of had groups thursday had a small group yesterday we've got a big group today um a busload of people drove six hours to come to jurassic arc there's a homeschooling group that was there the other day uh, enjoying our megalodon in fact if you keep looking at the beautiful things that are there at jurassic arc despite the drought you should see some lovely orchids coming up and and the interesting thing is these thrive even in the drought at the present time so if you keep flicking these up joseph i'll just comment on them quickly one of the things that fascinates people is this tank it's to illustrate that trees sink vertically. So show them a couple of the close-ups, Joseph. See, they don't touch the bottom. They will sink with their bottoms waterlogged, and you'll find them standing upright in the water. Bury that, 
and you end up with polystrate trees. That's the simplest explanation. I came across that first in the records of the Admiralty hundreds of years ago where a ship's captain had to report on the damage to his ship. Oh, your lordships, I ran into a tree in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean and it was standing <laughs> right through the bottom. And they still do that. If you come to many of our wilder streams and you get a flood, you have to watch out for the trees, not the ones horizontally, but the ones that are bouncing up and down in the stream and they'll punch a hole in the bottom of your boat. Uh, so that, that's one thing we've been doing. The other thing is yesterday we had a, a uh, volunteer come up. He's basically South African in background, but he wanted to dig a fossil up. So I sent him an assignment. So bring him up on the screen, Joseph. We've got Aussie watchers this morning. We need uh, many volunteers at Jurassic Ark. So get in touch with me by email. You'll see Marius there. He's digging a hole and there's something on the left-hand side. Now he's dug the hole a bit bigger. This actual thing was found by a schoolgirl about three years ago. And this is the first time we've had a chance to expose it. She was looking for fossil logs. And when I asked her what she'd found, she said, oh, just a big rock. Well, it's a really big rock. You see Marius' hand there on the right-hand side and his hand on the left. One's on a bit of petrified wood. The other is on a massive rock. Uh, next one, Joseph. You will see the size of this. You see on the left-hand side, there is that little bit of petrified log. There's a tiny bit crunched up against it. But this is a rock which tells you one thing. Next slide. If you look, put the three by comparison, the size of this rock tells you the trees came in at the same time as the rocks came in. This was a violent flood because uh, uh, trees float, but rocks don't. So we had, we've had a great time exposing evidence and we're still uh, trying to figure out what, where this came from. There's no rock like this anywhere nearby. So this has been mega shifted and mega dumped. So it really is a massive flood deposit. Close up, looks like some sort of quartz has stuck the whole thing together. Maybe there might be gold there too, who knows? But we will continue nice. uh, to dig up the evidence because as the book of Job says, speak to the earth, it'll teach you God's hand has done this thing. So Noah's flood has left a signature of God as judge on the earth and that's why it's unpopular, not because of the lack of evidence. Great stuff. Busy days, busy days. Um, it's been fairly busy over here in the UK as well. We've sort of started back up in um, <clears throat> what I tend to call proper ministry, but uh, it's sort of, you know, in-person ministry, actually being able to go and travel and speak and get involved with some things. So we did our first ever field trip in about nearly three years. The last time I did a field trip, John, uh, in the UK anyway, was, um, remember when we were over here in 2019 and you were really ill down yeah. on the South Coast yeah. and I had to go do the field trip all by myself? Um, I mean, it was a great miracle, by the way, because you'd come over with uh, on the plane with somebody coughing and spluttering next to you and then I mm -hmm. stayed with you for three weeks. You came down with a cold and it never affected me. So thankfully it never really affected the ministry. Um, but it was the first ever field trip that we did. I'm afraid I haven't got any pictures up. I've been out all day and we had a, a big crash on the M1, which meant that 
what was supposed to be a two-hour journey ended up being nearly four hours, so I'm a little bit weary. But uh, we had a great time out on the field trip. We had a great time digging up some fossils. And it's a place that I've been many times. It's a place that John has been many times. It's also a very famous place geologically. It's right on the border of Castleton, um, where the famous Blue John Mines are, the world-famous Blue John Mine, only uh, place that you can get this Blue John Crystal from. Well, what a lot of people don't know is if you literally go from where the Blue John Mine is and walk around the back of Mam Tor, which is a short two, three minute walk, you end up getting to some wonderful shale. You've got limestone and you've got shale in lots and lots of layers. And in the shale, there are lots and lots of plant fossils. And in the limestone, which is the same sequence, there are lots and lots of seashells. So you've instantly got evidence of a flood because you've got land creatures and sea creatures buried together. But another rather spectacular find that we made, and uh, by the way, this is not actually, I was talking to, to you, John, just, just yesterday, these are not actually that unusual because we've found them all over the place. So it's remarkable that they're not really shown up in the media very much, but let me hold that up to the camera so you can see it. Um, can you see that rather spectacular fossil thorn on there? It's a really, really lovely clear one. In fact, we've got the other half of it as well, and... Um, the problem with these fossils sometimes is that because they're uh, so brilliantly preserved and so well preserved, it is actually the whole plant, which means once it starts to dry out, it actually starts to fall apart a little bit, but you could just about see the two thorns still there. But they were wonderfully fresh and clear when we first dug them up. And I like to remind all the people on the field trip that if the Bible really is true, and if you are Christians and should really believe the Bible, then you have to actually remember that Scripture also gives you a history of thorns. It's God's legal dealings with mankind, and thorns come into those legal proceedings, if you like. Because if you read back in Genesis, thorns are the result of the curse. In other words, thorns and thistles and prickles and whatever kind of scientific term you want to give them because there are many different scientific terms for sharp things that stick out of the side of plants but the biblical point is if it's sharp and it's pointy and it sticks out of the side of the plant it's a thorn it's a thistle it's a prickle and they all came after adam sinned in other words these rocks at castleton uh carboniferous by the way or if you're in the usa you call them pennsylvanian and mississippian and uh we've collected haven't we john from the sort of carboniferous permian layers all in australia in the uk in tennessee in uh, the usa they all are the same rocks and they're all full of the same fossil thorns which means that they're not 350 odd million years old but they're actually less than 10,000 years old according to the bible around 6,000 or less than 6,000 years old if you want a more accurate figure um interesting but very important point to make when you're digging up these fossils so we had a just make with, uh, one with point in here joseph of course um not only am I jealous of you being the first one to find thorns here in Australia in our rocks that I've searched for 40 years, uh, but congratulations on that. But what really has struck me is the first time I found these thorns, there were dinosaur fossils above them. Uh -huh. Now, as, as I've really upset people 
you know, colleagues in geology said by saying, if you believe your Bible, then the thorns were not there in the rocks till after Adam sinned, which puts the dinosaurs in the rocks, not hundreds of millions of years before people, but only after mankind had rebelled against God, which resulted in death, which resulted in the flood ultimately, etc. And so they are time indicators related to a biblical history, which the world does not want to acknowledge. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So we had a great time uh, with fossils and fun and caves and all sorts of wonderful things. It was great to get back out there on the field, which was marvellous. And we've got a lot more ministry coming up. So very busy times up ahead. So, yeah, we've been fairly busy. And the reason I wasn't here last week, by the way, for those who were uh, who were here last week and noticed my absence, it was actually my uh, brother's wedding, and he was getting married to my wife's sister, so we're keeping it in the family, and uh, I'm sort of sister-in-law twice over, um, but they had a, a wonderful and very, very blessed time, and um, it was actually uh, our, our pastor from Norfolk who was supposed to be coming over to do the wedding sermon um, suddenly wasn't able to make it last minute. So I found out at 7.30 the night before, oh, could you please do our wedding sermon tomorrow? So I was completely out of the picture for doing anything with Creation Conversations, but it uh, it went very, very well and the gospel was certainly preached there. So that was some great so, stuff. So Joseph, how did our sermon go? Because I got a very urgent call saying, <laughs> help, help, help. So so we prepped the sermon, so that was good. Very, I really thrilled with the well. result. There were, there were quite, a, yeah. quite a lot of hard hearts in that room it um, did. from both sides of the family. So um, I uh, I had to just sort of turn the notch up one or two on the, uh, <laughs> on the strength level, but uh, it went okay. very, very well. In the, Can the I make one last point on the field trip to Mamtor? Sure. Because when I first went there, as you know, I love words. I love mm -hmm. looking up where they come from. And, of course, mam is an old sort of Latin, Roman, Greek word related to mammary because mm -hmm. these, the plate, the mountain looks like a big breast, right? So mm -hmm. it's, it's a, a, a mother mountain sort of feature. But then the word tor, which we regard as Old English, Celtic, etc., I was fascinated to find that when you look up the Hebrew word for big rocks, big tor, big hills, etc., it's the word tor. Now, that's a bit of a a linguistic mystery because so much of English, Anglo-Saxon, Celtic is not related to Hebrew, but this one is. And of course, the Hebrew-English connection will come up in our discussion of authority tonight mm -hmm. in just a few moments' time. Absolutely, yeah. And I remember you taking me to uh, a rather special church in Wales, which had an interesting Hebrew connection as well with their language. So um, let's dive into this topic because it is a big one. In fact, you um, sent me some of your notes and it's like about 17 pages long and it's only part one of three, right? So uh, we're not going to get through all of it tonight. Um but I sense a book coming on. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. This, uh, this topic... When should a Christian obey and or disobey, perhaps more poignant in these times, when should a Christian disobey the government? Um, so, and I, 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 as I was reading through your notes, I was really rather fascinated to see how you sort of um, uh, started from a complete historical perspective. Yeah, the, the reason is, you know, over, over the years, we've made a point where something comes from tells you what it means. It doesn't matter whether it's a law. It doesn't matter whether it's an object. 
it doesn't matter if it's your belief about human beings. Where something comes from tells you what it means. What it means tells you what it's worth. What it's worth tells you what you do with it. If a law is worth nothing, chuck it, right? Get rid of it. If a law is from higher authorities and valuable because of that, then keep it and find out what it means. Okay, an IQ test to set the scene. Okay, 490 years ago, an Englishman who's related to this topic was strangled. Who am I talking about? And I thought you I, knew. I, 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. And after he was strangled, is he this, was is this strangled? Is this? Are we thinking of? Um, are we thinking of a certain Mr. Tyndale? We are thinking uh, of a certain Mr. Tyndale, who was the first or first British scholar, uh, went to Oxford. Um, and was uh, proficient in Hebrew and those sort of things. And he was the first English scholar to actually resort to the Hebrew text oh. to produce an English translation. Yeah. And of course, because Wycliffe the, was there earlier, but he all he yes. literally did was take the Latin and yes. all of its corruptions and issues at the time yeah. and just translate it straight into, into English. Yeah. But um, yeah, Tyndall now, went, went back Tyndall, to the original. Tyndale was not only someone who became very popular with Henry after his death, of course, um, <laughs> but, you know, Henry VIII with all the divorces and wives and things like that, right? Um, but he translated Romans in a way that Henry liked for the first two verses of Romans chapter 13. But he was put to death because he was seen to be a rebel against both church and government. Mm. Now, this issue is all about obedience. We put it in the positive. Obviously, uh, the English reader, when should a Christian obey the government? The implication is there must be times when you disobey the government. That's why I love English. You can say what you like and they can't prove you meant it. Uh, it's, it's a really wonderful language. It's so flexible. But when you look at Tyndale, the church said you will not have the Bible in your own language, right? It must be in Latin. It must be so only the priest can actually be your interpreter. And they were afraid of the people finding what the Bible actually said because they would have soon realized, like Tyndale did and even Henry did, that the Catholic Church was going way beyond any authority given to a church on planet Earth. And they didn't want that revealed. And Tyndale was seen as a traitor to the cause, as a rebel, as a disobedient person. So in the issue of obedience, when the world is ruled by the Catholic Church, when the king is the defender of the faith appointed by the Catholic Church, then Tyndale had to be got rid of. So there is a great example of a Bible translator who did the world a blessing in producing the first English translation, being regarded as a criminal for translating the Bible. There, there's where you've got to start your thinking. Yeah. For sure. I think we've, have we lost you there for a second. Oh, no, no, you're back. That's fine. I thought I'd lost you for a bit. Right. So we start with, we start with Tyndall and we start with the historical connection, but how does this tie into the sort of the, the long-term history of the United Kingdom? And also what has that got to do with the position that we're in now regarding obedience to government and so on and so forth. And it'd be good if we, we sort of look at that and then, uh, you know, go through perhaps a bit of history together and then tie mm -hmm. it into mm -hmm. the, the biblical point. Yeah. Is there a biblical um, okay. basis, a biblical line as to when we should or shouldn't obey the government? No, you know, we've, we've collected rocks and fossils all along the East Coast 
down around the point and all the chalk cliffs. Uh -huh. And you and I love history because it uh -huh. makes the place come alive. So yeah. if you walk along, particularly the southern part of the uh, exposures of Cretaceous, Cretaceous being a Latin word, simply meaning chalk, not millions of years, etc. So can I encourage all your students, Bible students, history students, geology students, make sure you know what the words mean. It betrays the evolutionists. Uh, mm -hmm. it, it exposes what they are lying to you about. But you and I and Andrew Forbes, one of our keen supporters, have wandered mm -hmm. along there. And one of the things that's very obvious is all the cabbages mm -hmm. that are growing along the bottom there. Um, they're Roman cabbages. The Romans knew about cabbages. We know that because they wrote books and, and they put illustrations in their cooking books. So the Romans invaded from that southeast, both both Julius Caesar, right, and his ill-fated uh, entry to Britannia, as it was in those days, because your first settlers there were known as Brits, which is where our name comes from, uh, Celtic peoples, of course. But what you've got is Julius Caesar and the next lot of Roman invaders coming in a hundred years later, basically. And you say, why did they do it? Well, A, they wanted the tin, they wanted the silver, they wanted the gold. But B, they were mad as hatters that a hundred years earlier when Julius Caesar had invaded uh, and when the Romans had tried to control them Frenchies, um, the Brits helped them, right? The, Brit, the Brits helped the, the Gauls, they helped the Gallic people. And, and th there's a key factor in all of this. The British, British people and the Gallic peoples are all basically the same group. You spit at my brother in France, I'll jump on your foot if you invade England. Yeah. And this is back when Britain and France were friends, of course. Yes, it's yes. Well, it, it comes and goes. It comes and yes. goes. <laughs> You've got to watch this. It's, it's a very funny thing that if you sort of have an argument, the French will be on the opposite side of the English, <laughs> but if someone picks on the French, then the British will be amongst the first to support them. So yeah. it's quite We're currently quite an having an argument over fish at the moment with all this Brexit <laughs> stuff, so we won't say anything okay. about that. Okay, enough sidetrack, because at that time, everybody was pagan, mm. right, including my ancestors in Scotland, and when the Romans sort of took over, they were fascinated as well as interested in control. Uh, they couldn't control our Scots and neither can the current British government, but they, the Romans built a big wall across the top. It wasn't as a tourist attraction. It was to keep my pagan, cannibalistic cousins and relatives and ancestors uh, from, from annoying the daylights out of them. Now, ultimately, the Romans would leave. And the tragic thing is they took... Very few things from England. They left very few things behind. But the one thing they did take was the secret of making concrete. So when the Romans had built the Roman walls around London, well, you've been to London. Are some of those walls still there, Joseph? Some of them are fabulous, yeah. And especially when you get to the old forts and stuff. It's, it's amazing right. some of the technology they did. Reinforced. It really incredible. And, and we, we replace our big concrete skyscrapers every 20 years because the concrete doesn't last very long. So the Romans were masters of concrete. And for those of you who are interested, even though this is about authority, you will find that uh, the Romans actually built um, their concrete with plants in it, silica-rich plants, which had a habit of growing and contracting so the, the actual concrete was alive. It was fossilizing the plants inside. And they used shells, but not absolutely crushed shells. And the crystals would grow and regrow to self-repair. Amazing concrete. 
And another quick comment on the on the concrete as well. Something that I found out is that when you had these huge, I mean, these walls could be ten feet thick. Some of these fort walls, Mm -hmm. and the center, in the center of them, the concrete was never fully set, and they've cracked some of these walls open, and it's still not fully set. And you might think, well, what's the benefit of that? Well, what it means is, if you have damage coming in from either side of the wall, what happens is once the air reaches the concrete inside, it sets and it's hard again. And so if you have a hard rock or a hard block of concrete and you drop it, the whole lot cracks if it's set. Mm. But if it's soft in the inside and it only cracks the outside, the inside then sets, and so you've got a much stronger defense on the whole and one that's going to last a lot longer, which is why they're still here today because as it's corroding it's just getting harder and harder yeah fantastic the closest invention that i can find that we made was the self-sealing gas tanks in the airplanes in world war ii Mm. similar sort of situation right but going when the romans left they took that secret with them so from then until 1066 there's almost no long-term enduring buildings have lasted because the celts the Anglo-Saxons didn't have the secret of making concrete. But it brings us to one Anglo-Saxon who's crucial to this whole issue of understanding not only Britain, but Scotland, England, Ireland, the British Commonwealth, Australia, even the rebels in America. You know, even though they're called the cousins today, there was a rebel uh, situation that was involved as far as the king was concerned. But the person I'm talking about is Alfred the Great. Anglo-Saxon sort of lived just outside of uh, to the southwest of what what would eventually become London, the old kingdom of Wessex. If you've heard of Essex, Wessex, Sussex, um, even was there a Norwex up there somewhere, Joseph? The Norwex, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. But what you'll find is that when a- Alfred began to take over he had a vision of a united kingdom. Uh But when he actually won against the pagans, e.g. the Danes and the Vikings, I use two terms for them, because when they came to buy and sell, which they often did, they were called Danes. When they came to kill and ravage and rape, they were called Vikings. So one name for Wednesday, another name for Thursday. Um, And something to bear in mind when it comes to the Vikings is that the only written records that we have of the Vikings were written by the monks who had been pillaged by the Vikings. So clearly the records that we have are from a very sort of one-sided argument when it came to the Vikings. But if you actually dig into their history a little bit more, they were very, very sophisticated and predominantly traders as opposed to ravaging pillagers. So just a little little thought there as well. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so what you find is that King Alfred eventually wins in the sort of late 80, late 800s, mm-hmm. we're talking about now, Romans have been gone for all practical purposes for 200 years. Alfred wins. The last pagan king is baptised. Uh, technically, Alfred is old Catholic, uh, mm-hmm. pre-sort of, uh, you know, what, what we call our modern Roman Catholicism. Mm-hmm. But he wants to build England on two things. And one is the plans of Pope Gregory. You know, the guy who gave us the new version of the calendar? That's Uh about what most people know about Pope Gregory. He wanted the people to be trained. 
He wanted his people to be at least literate in Christian things. He wanted the priests to be trained because, let's be honest, in those days, the priests knew almost nothing more than the ordinary person did, except they were authorised to sprinkle water or uh, say, you know, hocus pocus, which is actually a term coming from what the priest actually said in those days. And what you'll find is Alfred wanted that to be improved because he longed for education and he self-taught himself to become quite a brilliant scholar. But he also did one thing. He wrote up, or he did two things actually, one of which we've still got copies of here in Australia. And one is the, it's called the Anglo-Saxon Chronicles in which mm-hmm. you authorise the, the most knowledgeable priest to write up the whole history of England. And it starts with him and it goes all the way back to Adam. So beyond a shadow of a doubt, his biblical emphasis is the Bible, is the revealed history, and it's accurate for the whole world. And here's where I fit, right? And here's where Britain fits, and here's where the Roman kingdom fitted, etc. And the other thing he did was he started to write up a draft of laws as to how things would work. And beyond a shadow of a doubt, you could actually see it, his whole emphasis for British law was the Ten Commandments. Mm-hmm. Okay, Joseph, now you're, you're a, a Brit, you're a, a Celtic background. I mean, look at your hair. You're definitely a Celtic. You're pre-Roman. Um, oh, for sure. A little bit of yeah. Scottish in me as well, so we may well be related in some way. I know. So in all of this, for those of you who don't understand British history and the implications it's had all around the world, retreat back a bit. The first Romans come and the Brits flee usually to the west or the southwest or up north. So they concentrate in Wales, Scotland, and some of them went as far as Ireland, but the Romans never worried too much about Ireland, and they went down to Cornwall. So you find today's divisions, our conflicts, uh, as I learned the hard way, never call a Welshman English. He is not <laughs> an Englishman, right? You will get in rookie mistake, rookie if mistake. you travel to uh, Western Scotland. Don't fly the British flag. Uh, it is not popular at all and hasn't been for nearly 2,000 years. These are different tribal groups. Alfred comes in and the Brits flee again. Right, any remaining ones, so you're getting a reinforcing of racial groups. So it may be a united kingdom. And Alfred's vision came true, except for Scotland. Uh, you find his vision coming true by the end of the 800s. You have his limited united kingdom, and the dream is born for making this, in the end, what Elizabeth I would make an, ex- an extensive empire of the of the united kingdom. Okay, Joseph, how does that affect you there? Because there's a group coming in on the next part of this, which really messes things up in a big scene because there's 1066 and all of that as the Normans come back in. So tell me what effect you had in your old hometown, you know, of of, of, what was the name of that place again? Hindleveston was my original home village, right? Um, it's an old uh, Anglo-Saxon village. It's an Anglo-Saxon main name. It refers to the farm of a guy uh, at the time. And back then, you've got to remember farms. The, we didn't have towns and cities as we imagine today. Back then, what you tend to have was farms. And farms were a lot bigger 
than just one person who was a farmer. They tended to be whole communities rather than a, a sort of a village. So you'd have a trading village, or you'd have a fishing village, or you'd have a farming village. And it was a collection of individuals who uh, were usually all related to each other <laughs> in some way, you know, cousins or distant cousins or whatever. Um, and they would be all in the same job. So in the Hindelvestern's case, it was farming. It was a farming village. Now, to give you a Christian perspective on this, there's a lot of evidence that Christianity was in the United Kingdom within 20 years or so of uh, the Roman occupation of Britain. In fact, an interesting little reference in uh, in Paul's books is that he said he's planning to go and visit uh, over um, to the west, which could well have meant ended up in uh, in Spain and onto the British Isles and Gaul and so on and so forth. But of course, we'll never know. And Paul, of course, never made it there because he ended up in Rome. Um, but it was a Christianity that was certainly based on, on scripture. It was a true Christianity. And what you had stemmed out of that is what became known as the Celtic Christianity, which called itself Catholic at the time. But then you've got to remember that, um, you know, we're, we're all Catholic Christians. It just means a universal uh, one church uh, separate from the Roman Catholic. And that didn't really take effect to much, much later. And it took even longer to eventually filter down into Britannia. And you can find out more about um, Augustine of Canterbury, separate to Augustine of Hippo, because that confused me no end. But it took a long, long time for the true staunch Roman Catholicism and the way that we would think of Catholicism today to actually reach Britannia. Uh, and that really happened with the Norman conquest. So the Normans, who were really Vikings that had come and settled in Normandy, they were separate from the Gauls, uh, or the rem remnants of the Gauls that the Romans had left there. They'd settled in their own place. They were very, very good at trading. The Vikings had incredible trading routes all the way over, um, basically from China. They found silk stuff in York in Viking Age times, right? So great, great trade uh, routes that they had set up. But the Normans came across and there was the whole tricky thing of uh, Edward the Confessor and, oh, no, you can be the king and you can be the king and I should be the king and so on and so forth. Big battle, 1066, and, of course, Harold loses um, after previously defeating another group of Vikings that had invaded from the north. So Harold loses and uh, you end up with William the Conqueror who is declared the king of Britain, the king of England at least, right? Okay, what significance is this with uh, Christianity? Well, the Rome, uh, the Normans, or, sorry, were staunch Catholics. They had actually gone and got the Pope's blessing, and so as far as William was concerned, well, the Pope has told me I'm the King of England, so here I am. I've just come here to claim my throne, right? You had no right in being the King, even if Edward the Confessor had said you could be the King, Harold. I've got the Pope's blessing. And so they were staunch Catholics, and they set about doing two things. The first one was stamping Catholicism into the land. And you can really see the true meaning behind this, or the true history behind this, or the true reason behind this, had nothing to do with Christianity, it had nothing to do with religion, but it had everything to do with a control of the people. Because one thing that you will notice in a lot of English counties, especially where we have the Norman churches or the record of Norman churches, and Norfolk is a great example of this, two things uh, come to mind. The first one is, if you stand at the top of, top of a church tower in Norfolk, you will always be able to see at least two other church towers. 
Why? Because they used them as signal posts, because they were able to communicate from one to the other, just like you would in a military fort. Secondly, the churches were far, far bigger and far, far stronger and far, far more reinforced than they actually ever needed to be. Now, if you had 40 people coming to your church today and you decided to build a church which could hold 500 plus, you might think that this person is hoping for a revival. Um, but that's actually exactly what the Normans did. They came to Hindelvest, a tiny little village. It's recorded in the Doomsday Book. You can even find out uh, roughly how many people were there by the number of animals and cattle that were recorded, which was 20 cattle, 40 goats, and two beehives. Right? Not a huge amount of farming going on, uh, about 40 to 45 people or so. Yet they put a massive church in, which sadly fell down in the 1800s, but a Norman church which was put in place, which when it was being used, it could seat about 300 people. But of course, in the Middle Ages, they didn't sit down, they stood. So you had a church in this little village, which was capable of housing, holding up to 500 plus people standing, and yet you only had 40 people. And it wasn't until the 19th century that it even went above 150. So you find that these churches, which suddenly sprung up all over the country, I mean, they were vastly more than the population required at the time, but they had everything to do with control. They had everything to do with power. It was a place to store the money, to store the finances. It was essentially a castle. I mean, a lot of these old Norman churches, you'd gone from a, a tiny little quaint wooden uh, Anglo-Saxon church, which was the center of the community, which was there to serve the community, to suddenly having a massive great big stone building in place with a castle at the top and a watchtower which would house soldiers in him. Ah, it had everything to do with controlling the people. And so now what you find is that religion, or specifically Roman Catholicism, masked as Christianity, is being used as a way of not only earning money, but also controlling the people around you. Because these were still back in the days where you believed that God would appoint the Pope, who would appoint the kings. In other words, the appointment of the kings was by divine revelation through the Pope. And so your king was at the top but the pope was above the king and the pope was supposed to be serving god but what you find is that it was purely a way of controlling the people and actually earning money as well so how does this all fit into the next part of our story john okay i'll go in two directions here because you and i have both traveled america i've traveled for many many years over there and the one thing that is characteristic of many of the churches are the big tall steeples and when you say, why do you want a steeple on your church? And they say, well, that's what a church is. No, the steeple was, as you say, first of all, a watchtower for soldiers to live in. That's why the tops were crenulated in England, so you could fire yeah. your bows and arrows. They had, they had battlements at the top. Yeah, they <laughs> you did. You can still walk around. Did. They have battlements up the top. That's right. And and secondly, um, the, the churches who have copied this have had a big influence on how Americans have thought about churches without once realizing the size of that tower is a mark of power. It's a prestige thing, right? So even in the 1800s, when the millionaires, you know, 
the new uh, wealthy took yeah. over making churches. It was the biggest tower, the biggest cathedral, the thickest walls that yeah. that gained you points in heaven, particularly in the, in the Catholic and the Anglo-Catholic system of the day. So there's the first point. But many of our attitudes that we have in churches are now affected by one thing. The Pope appoints the king. The king, in exchange for supporting the Pope, offers promises of service, etc., provided he gets control. So Henry, uh, at the time of his separation from the Catholic Church, is not only going to reference our friend William uh, um, Tyndale uh, and Romans 13, he already is the head of the church. Now he appoints himself the defender of the faith, a title that came from the Pope, right? And he takes all of the rights that were his under the Pope and applies them further down. Of course, a long, long time from there, if you look at the, well, some of you may remember the program, Yes, Prime Minister, right, which uh -huh. still reflects a lot of hidden values that are there, hidden laws about the church. The king is the head of the church, whether he's a Christian or not. And likewise, the archbishop is not appointed by the lower bishops or the church in any way, shape or form. That's a position appointed originally by the king, then delegated to the parliament. So you see the prime minister saying, uh, you know, his, his assistant says, we need to appoint the prime minister. And then the, the prime minister says, why do we do that? And away you get the whole story. And then the assistant to the prime minister says, oh, no, we can't have him. He doesn't vote for our party. And so you will find that the appointment of the actual head of the church, the practical on the on the rubber meets the road, is a parliamentary political decision, not a Christian decision. Okay, so we've now got William Tyndale. We've got a Bible. We've got an English one. You can read it. The king can read English, right? So he can read it himself. And it brings us up to Romans chapter 13. Let me read this to you here. If I can just find it here quickly in my notes. No, I can't. There we are. Here we are down at the bottom here. I've got it in big, bold print. I didn't know how light it would be at this time. Romans chapter 13, verses 1 and 2. And Henry loved this. Let every soul be subject to the higher powers, for there is no power but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. Whoever therefore resists the power resists the ordinance of God, and they that resist shall receive to themselves damnation. Now, in our ministry, in our day, I've had that verse used against the ministry because we took a stand against homosexuality. No apologies, all you politicians listening out there. No apologies to you LGBT, XYW, whatever name you're calling yourself these days. The Bible's position in Romans, the book of Romans, chapter 1 and 2, is that homosexuality is a sin it's an aberration. It's actually a judgment by God that starts when people stop giving thanks to God and look at the consequences that are built into the whole of creation. Homosexuality is the last one where God hands you over to foolishness, men with men, women with women. Okay, but that's not what I read. I read the verse that's quoted against me where one clergyman said, oh, you chaps, you need to accept homosexuality now because the government has. And the government, the Bible says the government has authority. And so therefore, if you speak against homosexuality, you're speaking against government authority and the Bible forbids you to do that. Now, that's how that verse is used. And it has been used like that ever since King Henry's day. Wow. God says, I'm the head of the church. God says, I've got his approval. You know, divine right, a king sort of idea. 
you'll find that this permeates and the English Bible became the justification of it in those two verses. Now, of course, that clergyman who may have meant well, I don't think he actually did. I think he was as liberal as one thing and probably not even a Christian. But he should have realised that Paul, 12 chapters earlier, did not approve homosexuality. In fact, he says God totally disapproves it. And in the inter intermediate 11 chapters, Paul did not show any sign of changing his mind about homosexuality. So Paul writes this in the context of, hey, homosexuality is wrong and it doesn't matter if the government approves it because God is higher than the government. Now, there's the crucial point that Alfred the Great made. It is not me who is the head of everything. God is the head of us, right? And we start from there. That's why the Ten Commandments starts. This is the word of the Lord. Here's how you'll run Israel. Here's how you run your kingdom. Here's what Augustine, both, both Augustine said. <laughs> you'll actually find that they started with God's word and adapted it to a modern society. In fact, if you look at Romans chapter 13, when you look at the kings of England, there's two verses that they didn't like. They liked verses one and two because it seemed to give them absolute authority. Now, I do need to give you a bit of a warning here. As I said right at the start, I'm in a different place. I've got a field trip today at Jurassic Ark. I've got to leave shortly. So if I disappear around about seven o'clock, Joseph is taking over the whole history of England and America or whatever he and Sam want to talk about. Uh, but you see, I've got to make one crucial point in this link. And I guess we could say if people wanted the notes for this, Joseph, we can make them available. And you can Absolutely, put up a link. Yeah. Well, can put up a link. Send us an email, and uh, you should be able to get the rough draft notes. These are only sermon notes, but you'll find them very readable. Here's the next two verses that Paul wrote, and I'm reading from King James, right? King James, not Tyndale. Tyndale's a slightly more antiquated version of England, but the King James is actually based an awful lot on Tyndale. And Paul writes, "For rulers are not a terror to good works." But to evil, wilt thou then not be afraid of the power? Do that which is good, and thou shalt have praise of the same, for he is the minister of God to thee for good. Oh, that's verse 3. Verse 4, Henry and many kings since then have loved. But if thou do that which is evil, be afraid, for he bears not the sword in vain, for he is the minister of God, a revenger to execute wrath upon him that doeth evil. Now, any king can oppose you on anything uh, until you ask a question. Any king can sort of lop your head off based on that verse. Any king can sort of bring in draconian laws to oppose you if you don't want the jab. He can bring up any punishment according to that verse unless you ask one important question. Um, verse 3 says, he is the minister of God to thee for good. Question, who defines what's good? Question in verse 4, who defines what's evil? And when you look at the whole of the Reformation in England, the English Reformation, now you, you struggle with Henry because he becomes the head of the church and the first king has, how many wives did Henry VIII have, Joseph? Oh, quite a number. <laughs> <laughs> Almost as many as Eight. Henry. Yes. Eight and only difference? one survived him. As an old man. Oh, so adultery is the head of this church. Bigamy, divorce is the head of this church. Lust is the head of this church. It's and the motive behind it as well. 
that's really that? important to get and it's the motive behind the church as well yeah. um that's right. yeah, the, the the new church of england started off this is before it was truly reformed as you if you if you put it that way but it started off as essentially a catholic church with a different pope the pope was now the king uh, or that's what he would call himself and the whole motive behind it was sin it was a no it was a church built on sin so getting back to how do we define sin how do we define good how do we define evil you will find the king was not suited to define what that was alfred the great said god defines what that is here it is in the commandments right and so your biblical position and one reason why tyndale was first of all hanged and then burnt was the reality he said god's word is the sum total god's word is the end distinction god's word is the final word on what is good and what is evil so even the king was subject to the word of god in fact even the church was subject to the word of god the church wasn't over the word of god the word of god was over the church and this would lead eventually to an Anglican document which says that. Now, surprise, surprise, it's usually associated with a Presbyterian church, but the Westminster Confession was drawn up by a, a group of Anglican divines, and it took its acceptance largely in the Presbyterian church in Scotland, in the Baptist church early in America. So you will find it says the final definer, the Bible is the actual final word in all matter, of, of faith and conduct. Now, that's what the church should have been. That's what the country should have been. And the whole of the next stage in this up in Scotland, my ancestral uh, place is based on John Knox and his decision to actually run with that because he did one other thing. He was very unpopular with the Queen. The Queen Mary, you know, Mary Queen of Scots, they made a movie about her, which was reasonably accurate. She was a nasty piece of work. She was unbelievably a Roman Catholic politically and determined to silence anybody who said the Bible was above the church's authority. And John Knox, well, he was the sort of man who says, oh, your majesty, you know, you may, you may want to do that, but God says you shouldn't. And she's on record as saying she feared nobody except John Knox because he never flinched from telling her the truth. Now, can I encourage you Christians, You've got a local politician who's pro-homosexual. Have you told him the truth? Because if you don't tell him, how will he know? Have you got a, a prime minister who claims to be Christian and, and then passes laws that are anti-Christian or non-Christian? You need to tell him the truth. I mean, you need to sort of say, okay, we can hear you guys. Let's share this because I'll be blunt. There's not many Christians who are willing to stand up and say, here's what God's word says. Here's the history. Oh, a couple of things because my time is nearly running out here. John Knox, Scotland. Now, we Scots are a strange bunch. My name is Mackay. Mackay means son of Kai. Kai, you find him in records of 1400s. John Mackay, the oldest John Mackay I found, was in the ninth century up in my hometown, way on the north of Scotland. And you say, why on earth would you want to live up there? And as my father said, it was the furthest we could run from those English. They've been after us for a long time, right? You might be interested in the science of it. We, we've got the thickest soul feet of every race on the planet. I suspect it's because we spent so much time running away from the British. We are good fighters, but the English are good at war. Did you catch that difference? Right. We would rather sit down and talk about strategy. And by that time, the war is over. 
And so therefore we're the kings, we're the queen's guards because we're big and we can fight and we're big and we can fight because we're descended from the Vikings who are the world's tallest race and they were pretty good fighters when they got mad at you. So there's a heritage there. But one year I went back to Scotland and the one thing I'd learned from my history is when the queen took up residence or the king took up residence in Edinburgh Castle, her flag flew above it. And for some unknown reason, I drove into Scotland and there was the British Queen's flag in my castle. I, I couldn't explain. I just felt mad because she was in our counting house counting out our money. And I thought, there's something wrong here. And in reality, when you look at the conflict between Britain and England, it resolves over kings and queens' authority. And John Knox, John Knox rises up. He believes Romans chapter 13, and it says the king is only entitled to do what is good. The queen is only entitled to pass laws that support what is good. And if they don't, I'm here to tell them they're wrong and they will be judged by God. Uh, persecution is the end result. John Knox, at his time, won the battle for controlling Scotland. And you know one thing he did? In fact, it's probably going to be um, one of my last points for this morning since I do need to go and take a busload of people from Rockhampton who've driven six hours to come to our fabulous Jurassic Ark. In fact, you need to put up an ad for Jurassic Ark so people can visit there on our website in a little while. But you see, the, the John Knox did one thing that affects the group of people who are coming to Jurassic Ark today. Why are they coming? Because they're lied to in school about millions of years. They're lied to in school about apes turning into people. They're lied to in school about the whole theory of evolution. And where something comes from tells you what it means. What it means tells you what it's worth. That's where we started. So if you think man is just an animal, if you think that little baby in your womb, which the girl, girls at state schools do, is just a fish-like object, don't be surprised. Abortions have gone like crazy. It's, it's an evolutionist thing. They've changed the whole history. And so you'll find that what's this got to do with John Knox? Well, John Knox, when the Scottish um, Reformation was really underway, they won the day and the Bible became the sole, the final um, reference point in all matters of faith and conduct. John Knox was very concerned for the children. You see, there was no universal education. Only the rich could afford to get their kids educated. And so John Knox said, the Scottish people are under the Scottish church. The Scottish church is going to take authority over the people and we are going to give free and compulsory education to every Scottish child. Now, it took a long time before they did that and you still find relics of our rural society in that, even here in Australia where the rules became the same. We get 12 weeks off or six weeks off, depending on what part you're in, to actually help dad with the harvest. Over summertime, you have your harvest um, rules because you couldn't quite make everybody go to school all the time. The family would collapse. So there was a respect for the family. But in reality, think carefully. You do this in the 1500s when John Knox lived. Then you let go forward to the 1900s, the 2000s. Uh, Scotland in the 1500s believed in six days God created. Scotland in the 1600s believed that man was made in God's image. Scotland, because of people like Martin Luther, who wrote papers against pagan evolution, didn't believe a word of any evolutionary myth they already had. They've been there since the Greek and the Roman days. They believed man was made in God's image.
And so every child was trained, first of all, to read, then to read the Bible, then to learn to pray, then to know some Bible verses. Oh, that's before they did any mathematics, before they did any um, sort of ordinary things. But compulsory education was a seed that was planted under Christian guidance. And look at it in the 20 hundreds. You have pagans in charge of the government. And now the government says, why do I need your permission to jab your kids? Why do I need your permission to actually um, let the kids make their own decisions about being transgender? I don't at all. We own the children. There's a good seed that has produced hundreds of years later an absolutely bad result. And if you want to know how to reverse that, it won't really start with legislation or new politicians. It with renewed politicians because Jesus said, go into the, all the world and preach the gospel, teaching them to obey everything I commanded you. Not just to think about it, but to obey it. Change their ways. If they're homosexual, they have to repent. They have to turn back to the ways of God as defined by the scriptures, not by the church. Come on, you know your history. Churches come, churches go. Some churches, well, I mean, aren't some of them in court for, church, for child abuse? Aren't some of them in court for stealing all the funds? Of course they are. This has always happened. It's not new, uh, but you'll find the Bible is the chief guide and you need to get it out there. As Jesus said, you go, you tell, you teach, you baptize. We've been delegated an authority which is higher than the government. So when the government says you can't preach, you say, sorry, I'm willing to go to jail. Paul was, Peter was. They, all the disciples were, they rebelled against the authority that made false and wrong and evil decisions. That's probably a good place for me to exit, Joseph, because I've got uh, a busload of people waiting out there. I'm going to head out, so pray for me today. It's going to be a beautiful day. You can see it out here. I won't be broadcasting me next time, but it's been great to share with you some of these I things. Just wanna, I just want to add one, one last thing onto the end of that, John, very, very quickly, which is if people want to see the consequences of disobeying the government eh, because uh, you're actually obeying God, you can actually read Fox's book of martyrs um which is john fox i mean he was the one who documented all of the martyrs and the people who'd been killed for their faith because they disobeyed the government at the time um so i would also issue a warning about be careful or make sure that what you're disobeying the government for is actually what god tells you you should or shouldn't do and you're not bringing your own political ideas and mixing them up with the bible and going oh this must be this therefore um i'm going to disobey obey the government um because there's that you've got to make sure that you're actually doing what scripture says i think also john um we've got a whole presentation i know we've talked about it before but I, like i said we, this was just like a tiny fraction of part one of a sermon so um we weren't gonna get it all through but we have a whole program on john knox i just remembered also linking in with the whole slavery thing as well so yeah. i think we should probably do that at some point as well so catch you later john god bless we'll uh, we'll Thanks be keeping you we're going to finish up on the next bit in a moment and uh, and take some questions. So we'll see you in a couple of weeks' time. See you, John. Great stuff there. Great stuff. Fantastic. Uh, I learned some yeah. stuff there. It was brilliant. <laughs> it's amazing. One of the things that John instilled instilled in me installed in me whatever you want way back when i first started getting involved with creation research is to make sure that what he did he did two things actually the first thing he did was say learn a little bit of hebrew um because it helps you no end and it really really does but the second one was 
sort of off the back of that, learn a lot about the history of language and learn a lot about history as well. Uh, and I know I sort of fascinated you a little bit last week, Sam, or wasn't last week, it was the time before, the last time I was on anyway, um, with the whole history of America and why do uh, why do they drive on the wrong side of the road kind of thing and how does that all tie in with the Bible? So it really, really does, um, it really, really does you know understanding history or, or, or learning a bit of history not only opens up a whole new light um to seeing and understanding the culture that we're in today but it also i mean so many cultures have been directly affected by scripture especially in the west um because you know america and australia they all come from england and england has a very very long history of christianity it was certainly here within sort of 33 or 30 to 40 years of uh, of Christ's death so it was very very early on not the whole sort of oh it came in um through the Irish and the Catholics and so on and so forth so uh, one thing I highly recommend to everybody is to learn a little bit of history and uh, what I'll do is I'll just sort of finish up one little bit carrying on with this sort of history point uh, and then we'll throw it open for questions and if we've still got some time and if I'm still awake enough because it's been a very long day um, I'd like to sort of finish off with a uh, something based on an article that I wrote for the Ask site a while back which John has already mentioned earlier uh, why you know shouldn't you Christians start marrying homosexuals because you're obeying the government so um the little history bit that I want to want to take you on from, uh, we ha- kind of had to cut it short because uh, John needed to get to the biblical point. But remember, we, we jumped out of the Normans. The Normans had taken over and they'd stamped their power into the land. And what the Normans intru- introduced was the feudal system, which was the Pope at the top and the king then underneath. So the king was really the top of the country. And beneath him, you had the bishops. Beneath the bishops, you had the knights beneath the knights you had the sort of the noblemen the people and the traders and the people who were able to actually work with their hands and have a craft and beneath them were the serfs um the old essentially slaves really there's a whole program we've got on that but they were the lowest of the low they were the peasants right and the gong farmer was probably the lowest of all of them right so um you had this system which was introduced and by the end of the 1100s you found that you had lots and lots of rebellion and as a result you had lots and lots of tax and a certain king who of course was made famous when he wasn't a king was king john and you know what's his name robin hood and the sheriff of nottingham and all that kind of stuff and i've been to uh, sherwood forest and i've seen robin hood's tree that he was supposed to hide in of course there's a whole other connection to sherwood forest which is john wickliffe and his lollards um they took refuge there in nottingham forest in sherwood forest uh, where they hid there while they were translating the the scriptures into english the first ever common language translation of the bible um and uh there was a little issue with these taxes and the king would chop and change his mind all over the place. Now, bearing in mind back here, this is when the king was believed to have been appointed by the Pope. And so King John needed to make sure that he had the Pope's backing in all that he did. uh, And the Pope was just as greedy as everybody else. And so what you ended happening was a very, very famous charter was signed, which we now know today as the Magna Carta. Uh, It actually is the foundation for the American Constitution. 
And there's an interesting little bit of history um, because the, the Magna Carta was actually written up by the Archbishop of Canterbury at the time. And it was essentially the knights and the barons versus the king. It was a, a, a struggle over power and wealth about the king's funding and a fair night's work. And uh, how would it all sort of fit together? It was bad King John, as the history books will tell you, but he was actually backed by Pope Innocent III. Uh, he had full backing from Pope Innocent III in all of his endeavours and his taxes and the changing and everything, but the bishops and the kings at the time weren't happy with it. And so what was the basis of the king's power? Essentially, force and will. Uh, as it was in the Latin, versus the knight motto, in a sense, which was for church and realm. In other words, God is our strength. And so what you had is these two clashes of power, one who claimed that God was their authority, and one, the king and the pope, who said that, no, actually, God has given us the authority to take over by force and by will. And you ended up having the Magna Carta, which was signed by nine bishops and archbishops, and by the knights and uh, by the um, the king himself to say that basically from now on we'll give you a fair pay from now on I won't change the taxes from now on all of my words that I say I can't actually go back on them but Pope the not so innocent the third actually annulled the Magna Carta soon after it was written and so the king was free to go about and do as he pleased it was reissued again in 1216 uh, and then it was reissued again after the war of 1217 when John needed more money and had gone back on his word uh when henry the third who was the son of john needed cash it was modified and reissued again edward the third uh, first sorry modified and reissued again so on and so forth and you'll find yourselves all the way down to the american constitution and if you remember from last week what i mentioned uh the whole history and the pagan influence in um the American Constitution, supposedly, you know, one nation under God, a nation founded on Christianity, and so on and so forth, the founding fathers. Well, a lot of Americans don't particularly like it when you point it out, but not only was America founded on the pagan um, uh, influence of the French, who hated the English and hated anything to do with the English and would love to help these uh, American uh, rebels actually get some power and have a go at the English as well. So you have incredible pagan influence which came straight down from the ancient Babylonians, Hindus and the Greeks and influenced uh, America and the colon colonies that way but also your entire constitution which is based on the Magna Carta which is promoted as a great thing in the world today is itself based off of a sinful king's greed and the fact that it was continually changed we've all heard the story of King John and the Magna Carta how many times have you heard that it was changed and reissued and changed and reissued over and over again to suit the king's needs, to suit the power of greed and the power of wealth? And so what you'll find is that this influence that Britain had, and it's not a good influence, I have to say, right, even though we have a Christian heritage in sort of commas there, um, 
we have this sort of Christian heritage, if you like. And yes, it is true that it certainly started purely based on scripture uh, with King Alfred the Great and those before him. And yes, you had the great reformers and so on and so forth. So we do have a general Christian heritage all the way down through the monarchy. You have, especially since the Normans, you have this entire philosophy, this Christian philosophy, which is based not on the Bible, but on greed and on stamping power uh, and uh, uh, sort of putting authority over the people um, based on nothing, something that has nothing to do with the Bible at all. And that spreads out because Australia's legal system is based on an English system. Uh, Most of Europe's legal system is based on the English legal system. America's legal system and political system is based on the English system, even based on the Magna Carta, which itself said, no, you don't listen to the authority from God, you listen to the authority of the Pope, you listen to the authority of the King. And so they had part of it right, because if God appoints kings, which scripture clearly says that he does, he appoints all leaders, but ultimately our authority goes back to God. Um, Whereas the Magna Carta and these other sort of famous systems which are founded in in what is now the United Kingdom or Britannia or England or whatever it was at the different stage of history were founded not on the Bible, but on essentially a sinful philosophy. So you do have to be very, very careful when you're dealing with this topic to make sure that you actually have all of the history down as well. Um, But ultimately, it is God who is our authority. And I actually put up um, the... um, Uh, a link actually on the description of this video Uh, and the link goes through to a article which I wrote a few years back it was one of the first articles I wrote for the uh, the ask site uh, askjohnmackay.com which is a great site by the way it's not just John on there but a whole group of other experts from around the world and the original question that we had been asked was Since Paul says in Romans 13 that Christians should submit to governments, doesn't that mean that Christians, such as you lot, should stop opposing gay marriage and start having ministers who will marry gays and transgenders? And uh, what we actually do through the response that I gave, it's quite a long and detailed response, but we had a look through to have a look at how does government get set up according to scripture and what you'll find is yes it does say uh, especially if you look at the whole context of romans 13 it says let every soul be subject to the governing authorities but there is no authority except from god and the authorities that exist are appointed by god therefore whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of god and those who resist will bring judgment upon themselves john read that out earlier um so it's clear that we are commanded to be subject to or Admit to governing bodies, i.e., those people who rule over us. And it shouldn't be surprising because rulers are appointed by God, and God actually instituted the system of human government way back at the end of Noah's flood. I mean, if you have a look at Genesis chapter 9, verse 6, God is telling Noah, Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be slain, for in the image of God he has made man. 
Now, in giving this commandment, God tells mankind that if somebody murders, it is up to another man to condemn him and put him to death. In other words, somebody is actually governing. Somebody is actually in charge of another man's life and death, um, commanded actually by God. So this God-given system of government is continued throughout the Bible as God develops, first of all, the system of judges through Moses, and then in the response to people's rebellion, the system of kings in Samuel too. But notice when you have the system of judges in place and Samuel is there and the children of Israel are demanding a king and Samuel goes, why are these all, all these people, why are they rebelling against me? You know, why are they against me as a judge? What did God say? It's not you they're against, it's me they're against. But even though God knew that these people were rebelling against them, he didn't smite them down. He didn't refuse their request. He actually appointed a king in charge of the people so that he could use the king, speak through the king um, onto to his, his people. And bear in mind, this is the Old Testament. And in the Old Testament, the spirit would only come down on one of three people, prophets, priests, and kings. So the king was an extremely important part of God's legal system and God's ruling or governance system in speaking to the children of Israel. Um, so it's it's also interesting to note that God in his wisdom and sovereignty, which far secedes anything that we could ever possibly understand, um, will sometimes allow wicked governments to rule for his own purposes or to judge other nations and an example of this from scripture would be nebuchadnezzar i mean uh, uh, god says in jeremiah chapter 27 it says and this is god speaking here i have made the earth the man and the beast that are on the ground by my great power and my outstretched arm i have given it to whom it seemed proper to me and now i have given all these lands into the hand of nebuchadnezzar the king of babylon my servant and the beasts of the field i have also given him to serve him so all nations shall serve him and his son and his son's son until the time of his land comes and then many nations and great kings shall make him serve them Ah, so you have here a clear appointance of Nebuchadnezzar into power by God himself. And there's no way that anybody could define Nebuchadnezzar as a, really a good king. He was a cruel and brutal king, yet he's being put in charge by God. He's been appointed by God. Scripture is clear on this. So um, when what does submitting to governments actually mean so we've looked at god's god's given system of government we've established that god is in control of all and god is our ultimate authority so uh given that god does sometimes appoint wicked kings and wicked rulers when does it become our duty to disobey them and can we disobey the governments by still submitting to them so what does submitting actually mean does it mean to go along with every single law and rule and well Nebuchadnezzar was put in charge and yet uh, you have a whole line of um, evil kings and yet there's a whole system of accounts of God's people disobeying them. Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego is a classic example. Daniel in the lion's den is another one, right? An evil king put in charge and he has made a law which is you will bow down to this idol, this golden idol, and Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego say no. But what happened to them? 
they got cast into the fiery furnace. They had to actually submit to the king's authority and take the punishment which was due to them for resisting or disobeying that authority. They still submitted to the king's authority because the king said, you're going into the fire, and they went into the fire. Now, God miraculously saved them, and God doesn't save many of the other martyrs. Hmm. It's actually uh, an important distinction to make. And you can also look at Paul. I mean, he was constantly imprisoned. He was beaten. He was twice sentenced to death by the governing authorities and finally beheaded by the uh, command of Emperor Nero um, sometime around AD 66. But why was he actually executed? Because Paul refused to stop preaching the word of God. He refused to stop spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ. And at this point in time, um, Nero had fully banned Christianity. And so Christians could in no way submit to the word's highest legal and governing authorities and still be Christians, right? There had to be a system of disobedience there. But let us remember that in God's given rule of submission to earthly authorities, there is always the God uh, demanded exception. Um, Obedience must first be to the rules of the world's highest legal authority, which is the creator God himself. So we have to submit ourselves to the ultimate authority, who is God. And yes, there will be consequences that go along with that, just like there are consequences for Paul, just like there are consequences for Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, and just like there are consequences for every single martyr documented in Fox's Book of Martyrs. Right? There may well be some very serious consequences here. But make sure that you're actually doing things for the glory of God and not just mixing up your politics in with your religion as well. Make sure that if the government commands you to do something which actually doesn't go against scripture think very very carefully and very very hard before actually resisting it because remember that god is the one who has actually put that leader in charge a lot of americans got very upset when i pointed out to them that uh, god clearly wanted biden in charge of america for some reason um it's true. He's the one who's currently in charge, whether you want to argue whether he's there legitimately or not, according to the American system, he's certainly the one in charge. And uh, scripture is clear that God puts all leaders in charge. So he's there for a reason. Maybe it's there to test the Christians. Maybe it's there to bring judgment uh, on the non-Christians. But who knows? God has his plans and purposes, certainly. But make sure that you're willing to resist the government or disobey the government, but you're still subject to them. Um, even if that means suffering the consequences of your actions by putting Christ first. So there's a few thoughts for you tonight. Yeah, fantastic. Um I think this has been a really good topic tonight, actually, even though it's just, you know, scratching the surface of what we can oh, yeah. talk about. I mean, there's a whole load of just, you can go so much more deeper into this because it's oh, just yeah. barely of, scratching the surface. Yeah, exactly. Barely scratching the surface. Uh, and I think probably already a lot of people are sort of, their brains have sort of, sort of gone I know. with I know. information. I know. Um, but I mean, you know, you can always watch it back and write down notes. Oh, if yeah, you want for sure. to. We'll, and we'll for make sure. sure that um, 
John's uh, sermon notes are available. I've got John's sermon notes. I will put them up. What I will do is I will probably publish them on our website, mm-hmm. um, which will be the easiest way. And then I will add a link to them into the uh, comments and I'll pin it at the top of our uh, of the comments on the YouTube site. That's yeah. probably the easiest way. Good. So it's just a web page that you can mm-hmm. go through. And I don't know if you can pin them onto the podcast notes as well. Yeah. Um, I can, what I can do is I can just update the description so, and just put them yeah, in there. Yeah, that's fine. That's fine. Yeah, that's the um, easiest way. Yeah, but yeah. another sort of um, uh, one thing that sort of creeps into my mind as well. I've I've got a friend in um, America and sort of like the Bible Belt, um, and um, he's in uh, well secondary school age. It'd be high school for them. Um, he has been on a history binge because he's mm-hmm. absolutely gobsmacked the fact that the American education system doesn't actually teach you a lot about world history. No. aside from what america's been involved in yeah um yeah. which i think is very I, I think it's a disservice actually because there's so much knowledge and history you can learn uh-huh. just uh-huh. by you know opening up just a normal world history textbook and that's mm-hmm. what he's been doing he's been looking at all kinds of things and he's learned mm-hmm. all kinds of stuff about european history roman history greek mm-hmm. history you know even dabbling into sort of asian history and stuff like that um, of finding wealth of knowledge. Um, and if you're um, interested in sort of uh, the history of Britain and, and stuff like that, uh, one, pla- one great place to start is the Vikings because mm. there's a whole wealth of knowledge out about Vikings. I mean, there's, uh, there's hundreds of documentaries out there about Vikings. I mean, if you really want to get hands-on, uh, I'd recommend going to York. That's where I'm yeah. from. And there's, um, yeah. there's the... Best uh, place York- ever. Oh, thank you. Oh, thank you so much. Um, I'm sure me and my dad will be <laughs> pleased to hear that. Um, but yeah, um, if you can um, visit York, because there's some great archaeological stuff there. There's the uh, Jorvik Center, which is sort of an interactive um, tour through history of uh, Jorvik Britain. Um, and also there's the, um, oh, it's, it, it's called Dig, I believe it's called. Um, Dig, it's like yeah, a, yeah. Yeah, It's a hands-on archaeological um mm-hmm experience where you can you know unearth actual you know viking pottery and stuff like that and um the Coppergate dig that they unearthed in was it the 70s it was the 70s yeah late late 70s 70s, wasn't it yeah yeah. um was was they'd never found anything like it there was the biggest uh, viking deposit they'd ever found in britain and they learned so much about preserved as well it's remarkable it's just it it was the the houses were preserved as well how they made the houses and everything and they we learned so much more about the vikings just in that one dig than we did in all of the years beforehand of just you know digging up little bits and pieces here and there aside from going over to norway and you know Mm. learning about it from there um and you just see sort of like the influence that vikings had on this country but also as well a lot of people don't know this is that there were actually viking christians people who uh disavowed and went against you know thor you know and loki and things like that um and accepted christianity Uh um which a lot of people don't know about um and it's one thing that i've i found very fascinating is is learning about the how Christianity plays into Viking history and how that sort of progressed across the world from there. There were also those that hedged their bets as well. And I'll give you an example of this. So this is a a genuine Viking artifact that we have. Let's try and get it my face out so it goes into focus. What you will see, it's a little pendant, um, but it actually has two components to it. 
One of it is the top bit, which is the lunar shaped. So it's the half moon shaped. And then underneath that, you have the Christian cross. Well, a lot of cultures worship the moon and the uh, Vikings certainly did as well. So they would often have the moon shaped uh, and it would often go along with something like Thor's hammer because Thor was, of course, the god of thunder, and he could control lightning, and if you've seen your Marvel films, you know all of that. Um, But it was also connected to the moon as well, and the moon god, the crescent moon, is found everywhere throughout pagan culture, both from the Babylonians and the Mesopotamians all the way down to the uh, Islamic religion today. It's all completely connected with the moon god. So there you have a very, very pagan uh, symbol mixed in with a very, very non pagan symbol the christian cross and you'll often find thor's hammer is a great example of this because thor's hammer one way up looks like a cross and upside down looks like a thor's hammer so they'd often be very subtle with the way that they did it and would actually hedge their bets because this was more later on when if you you didn't really have to denounce your um Uh, religion or anything like that because all of a sudden you had the Catholic Church coming in which had great power and great money and great influence. I mean I went to Iceland which is a a Viking land uh, with my wife for our honeymoon and we filmed a documentary while we were there but one of the most amusing things I found was in their main Viking uh, exhibition was that basically the country went from pagan to Christian like that. It was literally overnight because they had a great big meeting and they decided to leave it up to one guy who went into his house, decided to have a short nap, woke up and decided, yes, we should be a Christian country, went out to the elders and said, we're going to be a Christian country. And just like that, uh, the entire of Iceland was Christian because they now could have connections with mainland Europe and uh, could actually do trade because you could only trade with the Christians and the Christians would only trade with other Christians. They wouldn't trade to the pagans. And so it actually helped them a lot. And you'll find a lot of things like this in Iceland because really they were just pagans masquerading as Christians or sort of hedging your bets or whatever would actually give you the the best result but if people want a really good start especially for our overseas who can't perhaps make it over here to york um want a really good start on the vikings um something that i personally would recommend it's a book and it's a television series i think it was for the bbc um but you could probably find it online it's just called vikings but it's presented by neil oliver and one of the reasons why i like it so much and i've got his book and his dvds one of the reasons i like it so much is because the vikings lived at a time where we called in 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 britain the dark ages and the dark ages is often painted as a time where people were in a sense you know stupid or there was no science really going on and it was steeped in pain and has nothing to do with that it was called the dark ages because we knew so little about it i mean the romans came and they were building great big stone walls and castles and forts and you can still go and see the remnants of them today skip forward and all of a sudden you have the vikings and the saxons who are just working with wood which doesn't preserve very well unless you happen to be in a spectacular place like Yorvik and Coppergate, right, in York. But what Neil Oliver does with his book is he actually treats Vikings like real people um, in the sense that he helps bring them to light using artifacts and things and places like um, Coppergate in York 
he brings them to light, treats them like real people, and actually creates a whole dynamic around them uh, based on the archaeological evidence of how they were living, rather than just this distant, you know, oh, this happened sometime and we don't know too much about it kind of thing. So um, it's a secular uh, book, of course, so they'll, it, it's not from a Christian perspective, so you won't hear a lot of what we've been talking about tonight, but it really is good for giving you a good sort of head start on uh, on the sort of the Viking heritage, if you like, um, and how that sort of affected the rest of the world. Fantastic. Um, well, it's uh, great to see so many people in the chat today. Uh, Absolutely. Yeah, exactly. Do we have any questions come through? We, we do. Uh, just say hello to a few people first. Hello, sure, Stacy and uh, my dad, Will, uh, Debbie, uh, Jerome. Uh, good to see you, Jerome. Uh, Suzanne, uh, who else have we got? Uh, got Gollum, who's also asked a question. I'll bring on in a second. Uh, our good friend George as well tuned in. Oh, hello, uh, George. And Neil as well. Hello. Uh, who else? And Doki Doki's here as well. Everyone's come out to play today. Uh, it's fantastic. Uh, Opindra as well. Uh, fantastic. Good to see you. A great audience today. Fantastic. Great to see so many uh, people interacting in the chat. Um, uh, got some questions in here. Um, actually, some apologetics questions for once. Usually, oh, they're sort good. of on radiometric dating or things that I yeah, can't answer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I can't get my <laughs> can't get my opinion in. Uh, this one comes from uh, Gollum RTW. He's got a two part question. This is the first part here. Is God waiting for evil to fill to the point where it is just for God to throw evil slash hell, aka unbelievers, into the lake of fire for eternity? Um, I mean, probably from, from what I'd say to that is that there's a there's a, a verse in scripture. I forget what um, where it's from. It states that um, he was uh, guilty of breaking one of the commandments. Is guilty of breaking all of them. Uh, if you were to try this in a court of law today, uh, if you say, well, you know, you get a uh, say, for instance, you have a stack of speeding fines, you have, but you also, um, in result of that, your most recent speeding fine, you were uh, speeding away from a robbery. Um, you were the getaway driver, you got caught, and you were brought to uh, to court under the guise of the, uh, well, the charges of um, the robbery. Now, the judge is going to have a look and say, well, We've caught you for this and you're bang to rights. We've got you coming out of the bank, CCTV, everything. Uh, what do you have to say for yourself? Uh, and you say, well, you know, I mean, I've, I've done all this other, you know, I mean, I doubt you probably would, but you could say that I've done all this other stuff. You know, do you want to throw it into my sentence, get it all over with? And they say, well, no, you know, this is what you're on trial here for today. You're just on trial for the robbery. So you are still guilty of breaking the law, but it doesn't lessen the impact you're still going to get punished um but also as well you know you can try sort of the flip side as well um if you say for instance you are brought to court for a stack of speeding fines um and the judge will say well i've got this stack of speeding fines here and uh you can either go to prison or you can pay the fines so the choice is yours whatever you want to do and you say, well, I know, I know I've got these speeding fines, Judge, but I'm, I'm a good person. You know, I've, I've, you know, I donate to charity. I help my nan, you know, with the, you know, arthritis. You know, I'm, I, you know, I, I do all these good stuff. You know, I, I volunteer at the RSPCA animal shelter, you know, helping all the puppies and things like that. 
and the, and the judge will look at you and say, well, that's all well and good, but you still have these speeding fines here that need to be resolved. What's the judge going to do? He, he, you know, the good doesn't outweigh the bad. Your, your bad is more important to be rectified than the good will play a part in. You can be the best person on the planet and still break the law and you'll still need to be punished for it. That's just that's just the lay of the law. And it's the same with God. He who is breaking guilty of breaking one of the commandments is guilty. It just guilty is breaking all of them. So one commandment broken or one law broken from God is just as severe as breaking all of them. It doesn't matter which which commandment it is. It's still God's standard that he sets for every single person. And so we must follow it and we must obey. Otherwise, we are. But the thing is, we're all guilty. We're all guilty of, of breaking the law because we are inherently sinners. This is this again goes back to Adam. Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden in paradise. And what happens? Satan comes in and goes, you know what? Yeah, is that what God really said? You won't actually die if you eat it. You know, putting doubt in and then Eve relays it to Adam and they both eat the fruit and then all it all goes pear shaped. Sin enters the world. The curse comes and. As a result, we live in a fallen world. We are inherently sinful because we have free will. Free will is a huge part in our actions. And also as well, linking back to the kings and, and rulers discussion that we had earlier. God appoints rulers, but it's up to them whether they obey God, because inherently they have free will. It's their choice whether they want to follow God or follow man. And because of our nature, we are inherently sinful and we will always naturally gravitate towards sinful desires because it feels good uh -huh. because it satisfies our itch in our brains that we go oh yeah oh yeah that, that felt good because you're disobeying because you're going against what's buried in your heart which is your conscience you go against that you go against god because it feels good but ultimately you will get caught out and it will catch up to you and you will face god and you will say you will have to give an account for your life you'll have to say this is what i've done and god will look at you and say well I'm afraid it's off the blocks with you, my friend, because you haven't accepted what, you, what my son did on the cross. Yeah. And that's the crux of the argument. Again, Jesus links back to Adam. What happened after the fall? Thorns. What we saw earlier, thorns enter the world. And what did Jesus have on his head? A crown of thorns representing the fall, representing the corruption of the world. And he took that to the cross and he died and he rose again on the third day and he took your sin on the cross as well as my sin, as well as Joe's sin, as well as John's sin, everyone in the world took the sin of the world on the cross. But there's a caveat. We have to accept it. It's a free choice. Just like Adam and Eve chose to disobey God in the Garden of Eden, we choose whether or not to be saved from it. Mm -hmm. uh, at the end of the day, I mean, you've got to start, if you're going to start throwing words like evil and stuff around, you need to ask, well, what is the definition of evil? Um, and you find that God is the one who defines evil. He's the one who created evil. So God is the one who created evil because he's the one who drew the line to say this is good and this is bad. And, uh, you know, Sam talks about free will and things like that. And it's interesting because you have the prayer that Jesus taught us to pray. Uh, Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be thy name.
in thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Right? So God has a will, and we're created as a reflection of God. We're created in the image of God. God has a will, so we have a will. Obviously, our will is nowhere near as powerful as God's will, but the one thing that Scripture is clear about is that in our corrupt state, our will tends to gravitate only to one side, right? There is none good but God. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and the heart of man is desperately wicked. We are all, as sinful, fallen human beings, gravitated towards the evil side of the line, right? The evil side that God created, or at least drew the line in to say, this is good, this is bad, and we're well over in the bad stuff. The wages of sin is death. All have sinned, and there's none good. So God isn't waiting around for evil to fill to the point where God is just to destroy us. He was just to destroy us the second that Adam sinned. Right? He could have wiped Adam off the face of the planet and started again had he wanted to. Um, the reason he didn't, by the way, is love. Because God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever should believe in him should not perish but have eternal life. So what you'll find is that the very same love which sent Jesus Christ down here to actually die on a cross is the very same love as to why he hasn't come back so far. Um, he's giving us all an opportunity to repent and believe. Uh, of course, it's God who does the work in us and does the actual saving. Our job is to go and spread the gospel. Um, God isn't waiting around, waiting to... Uh, to uh, uh, get to the point where he can justify destroying us. He's got all the justifying that he actually needs and has had for the last 6,000 years. Right? If he needed any excuse to kill us, one tiny little sin would be enough. Right? One wandering to the evil side of the camp would be enough. Uh, and that happened back at Adam. So it's actually his enormous mercy that he hasn't destroyed us, and then it's his even bigger grace that actually gives us an opportunity to be safe from our sins. So that's something that you need to bear in mind when we're dealing with this topic, is make sure you actually have your definitions right. Because evil is often conjured up as something, like, well, how did that come about? Who created that? God created evil. Scripture's clear. God's the one who drew the line to say this is good and this is evil. We just happen to, as fallen human beings, constantly choose the evil side of things and never really choose the good side of things. I mean, Scripture's clear. There is none who is good. None who is good, not one. You see, it's an all or nothing thing. It doesn't matter if you do what we define as good things. You're still not good uh, and you never will be good because there is none good but God, because just one tiny little stain is enough to mark you on the not good side. Uh, a good example of this that I used was imagining that you've got a cup of sewage, right? And you've got a cup of clean water. Now, you can put as much clean water as you want in the sewage. It'll never be clean. You take a tiny drop of sewage and put it in the water, and you've contaminated the entire water. No longer is that water good, right? We are full of the sewage, and we're the one who needs to save you who can wash us white as snow. Exactly. Amen. Uh, we've got a second part of that question here. Second question. When I witness to unbelievers, they say they're born again, but not because of Jesus. They use themselves as the reason for their own salvation. Um, well, I think this is this calls to mind. There's a scripture here. Um, uh, Jesus says that I am the way, the truth and the life. No man may come unto the father, but through me. And that's a, I think that's probably a very key verse to remember for that, because we're not saved by ourselves. We're saved by Jesus. We're saved by God. And that's that's the be all and end all of it. We cannot have this. We, we have this royalist, you know, this imperialistic royal view of ourselves and how good we are 
but compared to God's standard, we're way down. God is way up here and we are way down there. Like you said with the sewage, we are, you know, you can put a tiny drop of sewage into the water and it's fully contaminated. You won't be able to drink it. You can't do anything with it because it's, it's you, you, you will need to physically filter out that sewage and process it to make it clean again, which is what Jesus does on the cross. Jesus is key. Jesus is the way, the truth, the life. No one, no one on this planet may come to God, to heaven, but through Jesus. That he, it, it's the be all and end all. That is, that is where the buck stops with God. And little food for thought here. Christianity is the only worldview, and this is very important, the only worldview where salvation is not done by good works. It is a free gift from God. I think that speaks volumes of God's mercy and God's grace with us, but also I think speaks volumes about truth as well. Every other worldview is saying, oh, just be good and you'll get to heaven. Just be good and get to heaven. But what standard? We can never measure up to God's standard because he's ultimately perfect. We cannot measure up to perfection. But God isn't a monster because he gave us free will. And again, because of free will, we can choose the savior. And it's important for those people that are you are witnessing to for them to choose the savior. They have to choose to be born again. It's not, but it's being born again isn't a choice. It's a process that happens. When you accept what Jesus did on the cross and you believe in God and you accept what he did and you ask Jesus to come into your life and make you a new person, that is the process of being born again. You are made a new creation by the hand of God. God actively works in your, in your spirit and changes you, changes your desires, your spiritual nature to seek after things of a more spiritual nature of god reading the bible praying going to church witnessing to others it's great that you're witnessing i think that these people have their views warped slightly by society where you have oh buy this and you'll you'll feel great or oh, look at this and you'll be amazing you know wear these clothes and you'll fit in it's not about fitting in. It's about doing the right thing. Yeah, I think one uh, very good scripture verse, I just had to look it up. I knew the scripture verse off by heart, but I've forgotten the reference. I thought my brain was going to Ephesians 8, but then I remembered Ephesians doesn't have eight chapters, but it's Ephesians 2, verse 8, and there's the 8 through 10, which is for by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no man may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So there's obviously a lot that you can unpack from that Bible verse, and it's got interesting connotations to the whole subject of predestination and all of that, which we won't get into now because we don't have time. But one thing is abundantly clear. Um, we are made not only for the good works of God, but we are saved only by grace through faith. And it has absolutely nothing to do with anything that you or I have done. Um, you cannot use yourself as the means for salvation. And I like to remind people of Moses. Um, 
Moses, well, he was uh, a great man. He was a very humble man as well in the end because he'd gone up to the mountains, he'd collected the Ten Commandments, he'd come down, written by God's own hand, and he'd come down to the base of Mount Sinai and the children of Israel were worshipping a baby cow. Uh, cast in gold and of course Moses got angry and smashed all of the tablets and went back to God and he begged God do not take your judgment out on the children of Israel take my life instead now that was an extremely uh, you know gracious act of Moses Um, I wonder how many people today would be willing to do such a thing However, despite the amazing sacrifice that Moses was willing to make, God had to reject his offer because Moses was already a sinner. He had already killed a man. Uh, And scripture said one of the very rules that God had just literally written out with his own finger was, you shall not murder. And Moses had already killed a man. So Moses could pay for nobody's sins other than his own. And the wages of sin is death, and all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, therefore all die. Put it into Christ's perspective, if you have somebody who comes, one who is God himself, and actually walks on this earth, becomes flesh and walks among us, and never sins, the logic says that he should never die. But if he does die, specifically if he's crucified like the prof- uh, the, the um, prophecy has said, then he clearly isn't dying for his own sin, he must be dying for somebody else's. Ours, right? That's why it's so vitally important that God Himself, the only perfect being left, could actually come and die and then rise again to take the penalty for our sins. So, as soon as you have somebody try and say, Oh, this is something that I've done, no, 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 you can do nothing except for die for your sins uh, and take the punishment for them. And by the way, that punishment means eternal separation from God. Um, if you actually want the grace, the gift of life from Jesus Christ, it can only come from Jesus Christ. You contribute absolutely nothing to your salvation except for the sin that actually made it necessary in the first place. Amen. Amen indeed. Uh, we've got a question from Opindra. Uh, this, I think, will probably be a shorter question. I hope this is not sure. too much off topic, but is there any truth in that the Roman garrison that crucified our Lord was appointed to Britain in the first century? I personally have not heard this before. Mm. I don't know if you have either. I have, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I think um, it's it's it, it, it is certainly possible. Um, it is almost likely um it's virtually impossible to prove um it's difficult because at the time of jesus crucifixion particularly in and around the time of uh, the jews there weren't so much garrisons garrisons uh, in a sense who would be dispatched or the different legions who would be dispatched tended to be dispatched to newer countries or to newer provinces right so we had uh, the ninth legion that famously disappeared somewhere in britannia at the time right um and various uh, legions who were sent into places. At this point, the Jews had done a very good deal with the Romans, and so they were allowed to carry on basically living as Jews, provided they paid the taxes, and the Jews were and always were and still are very good with money, and so they were essentially the bank of the Roman Empire in, in, in one sense. And so as a result, there wasn't quite the same kind of military presence in Judea as there was in other parts of the world, say, for instance, Britannia. 
Britannia, where they were still trying to stamp things out, right? All that the Romans really had to deal with was the odd zealot uprising, which was normally squashed very fairly quickly because they were sort of overzealous, no pun intended. Um, so it's very difficult to prove which garrisons and which legions were actually present at the time of uh, Jesus in sort of 33, 36 AD, somewhere around there. Uh, it's very hard to sort of pinpoint an exact thing because these garrisons and these legions were moving around all over the place. There's been lots of different suggestions uh, and the same, there's not a complete record of which garrisons ended up in Britannia either. So it is possible because they did shift these legions and they did shift these garrisons around all over the place um you could have literally be appointed anywhere from as far over as the middle east all the way over to britannia right and uh if you go to again york is such a great place uh, and you go there you'll find that they had people from phoenicia living in york at the time of the romans you had people from libya and africa living in york at the time of the romans and these people would literally come from all over the place right all over the place all over the roman empire multi-ethnic cultural stuff going on in York 2,000 years ago. So it certainly is possible because they did shift around, but it's virtually impossible to actually prove unless we find a lot, lot more information, which we don't currently have. That's that in a nutshell, basically. Exactly. Uh, right, moving on to the next. I've got a comment here from my dad here. That's quite interesting. Uh, thought it's interesting how we often hear secular people speak of creatures when talking about animals mm -hmm. as a building implies a builder. Mm -hmm. So saying creature, of course, speaks of creator. It's very, very apt very well put uh -huh. um yeah a by the way for those who don't know creature literally means something created well there you go literally, <laughs> literally what it is it's in the name for sure yeah um, again it, that's why it's so important to learn not only history but also history of language it teaches you so much and you can often trip up the atheists and the evolutionists and stab the knife in the back and gently turn it with christian grace because it really does it really does help to understand the history of these of these words and uh history in the world as well Exactly. Um, this is a very interesting uh, point by George that I've heard before. Evolutionists tell us animals like snakes can't talk, but then tell us we are animals. This is sort of going back to, um, you know, the the talking donkey sort of argument. Um, you know, oh, donkeys don't talk and stuff like that. Well, I mean, I think you're, you're applying a too sort of literalistic point of view on it. Um, there's several different arguments you can raise. I mean, some would say that the God gave the donkey the power to talk. Uh, some say God spoke through the donkey, manipulating the vocal cords, or that some like an angel or something like that broadcast from sort of around the mouth area of the donkey the voice of God. You can go so many different ways with it. Um, however, you've got to ask yourself uh, one question: an all-powerful, eternal omnipresent creator who can do anything in the universe can manipulate the laws of physics to do anything at, at his will i mean this is we're talking about a being here that literally speaks and things happen um you know saying let there be light and there is light it literally happens um a, per, a, a being like that you can they do anything and the the person who's asking that question will have to say, well, I mean, well, they can't really get out of it because it, it's, it's an implied fact. 
that they can do anything because they can do they are in charge of the the universe and everything in it and the laws mm. that govern it so they can do anything so they can make a donkey talk how they did it i have no idea you know how how god manipulated the donkey to talk i've got no idea but the question the, the point is that the donkey did talk something happened and there was noise emanating from somewhere around the donkey or something like that, where it was implied that the donkey was talking. Mm. And the thoughts of the donkey were vocalized saying, why are you hitting me? And it just goes to show ju just the lengths that God will go to, to get your attention. You know, uh, I mean, I think, you know, my testimony, I think is sort of, it speaks a little bit about this and the fact that, you know, God put a, um, a Facebook ad on my on my feeds uh, advertising Alpha Course, uh, and I didn't, I hadn't even searched anything to do with religion. You know, it it just goes to show you know how God can sort of pique your interest in just sort of the smallest anything, way. Yeah, exactly, sure. God. The phrase "God works in mysterious ways" is literally true, because He made a donkey talk. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Great stuff. Any other comments before we start to uh, round up? We're going, uh, we're going for nearly two hours and we've still got a good group of people with us. So oh, great stuff. A question from George. Sure. Here we go. Uh, since the monarchy across the world is being replaced, do mm -hmm. you, well, re removed slash replaced, do you think it will be the same in England? Ah, good question. Good question. All right. Quick recap of, uh, and this is in a nutshell, so I know I'm not going to go that detail, for, but for those who don't know how British law works, uh, essentially we have uh, the power is spread over three different heads. You have the monarch, who is the queen. You have parliament, who is obviously headed up by the prime minister, as Boris Johnson, who is this day and age. Uh, and you also have the House of Lords. There are a lot who would argue that the House of Lords is outdated, and I may well be inclined to agree with them. However, one of the things that I do like about the way that British politics works is that you have three different heads of state. Now, we are still despite this whole history that we've just gone through, we are still a nation who has its laws founded on the Bible, uh, particularly it's sort of the, the legal side of things and the uh, what you should and shouldn't do. And as a result of this, what we do have is the Queen, who is the head of the state, the ultimate head of the state. Now, again, in a, in a perfect world, God is the head, God appoints the King or the Queen. Uh, of course, if you want John Knox's opinion, there should never be a queen in place at all. Uh, it should only be a king because scripture says that man is the head. Uh, but that's a whole other topic. But you have God who has appointed a queen or a king, and you have the queen who is in charge, uh, and is the, the buck stops basically at the queen. But we also have this division of authority between the House of Lords and the Houses of Parliament. Parliament makes the laws. The House of Lords is there to sort of check the laws and make sure that they're not doing anything anything illegal and then the queen is sort of at the top and can stop things happening if she really wants to. Now a good queen or a good king would stop laws that go against God's word. I mean, this is literally written into the uh, coronation of, uh, of a monarch. It's, I will uphold the law of God in this country. Right? It's part of the whole ceremony that you go through. And uh, you're supposed to do it for based on the Bible and for the good of the people. So a good king or a good queen 
will actually uphold the law of God and uh, make sure that what laws are being passed are for excuse me, are for the benefit of the people as opposed to the benefit of the politicians or the rich people in charge wanting to line their pockets, right? Now, in reality, it doesn't quite work like that, although our Queen has shown in a number of occasions to actually exert her authority and say, yes, you can, or no, you can't do that. A recent example of this, which people, uh, you know, the whole Brexit thing divides people, but if you're from the kind of background that thinks that Brexit was a good idea, um, one of the things you, you would have seen is when they had a whole hung government and Theresa May, uh, as she was back then, went to go and ask the Queen, can I please run my government? on a minority government and the Queen said no you've got to actually go out and uh, get a coalition and they end up getting a coalition with the DUP which is a relatively Christian party in Northern Ireland and they actually ended up having enough influence uh, certainly sort of more Christian pro-Brexit if you want to call it that influence um, on Parliament for quite a long time so uh, there you have an example of a Queen doing something which she believed was in the good interests of the people and actually stamping her authority because the final buck stops with her. Now, in practicality, when it comes to what you might call real biblical issues, things like gay marriage, things like um, yeah, all, all that is kind of sort of more political issues, which have abortion and stuff like that. Yeah. Abortion, that's a good example. Yeah, the Queen, although she has the power to do things to stop things, in reality, never would. Now, as a result, I think that there could well be a chance where the monarchy ends up being replaced. However, I do think it needs to be replaced rather than completely removed if it is going to be replaced at all. Um, I'm not particularly in massive favour of a monarchy, but I'm certainly not against it. I'm very happy with the Queen and the idea of the monarchy. I'm not too keen on the idea of Prince Charles being in charge, but that's a whole other topic, right? Um, I think that you do need to have this power spread over because if you don't, you are moving closer and closer to a one-state political system system. Now, inevitably, that's going to happen, right? The end times, one world government, that whole kind of thing, right? It's inevitably going to get to that. But I quite like the way that we have the power spread over three different kind of heads of authority. Uh, it's different. It's, uh, uh, you know, in America, you you do have sort of some spreading of authority because you obviously have Congress, House of Representatives, so on and so forth. But ultimately, the buck really does stop with the president, even more so than it stops with, say, the prime minister in the UK or the queen in the UK or so on and so forth, right? Um, ultimately, the fast decisions have to be made, um, but things do have to be passed through Parliament. Things do have to be passed by the House of Lords. Lords things do have to be passed, ultimately, past the queen. And so I think it's a good idea to have these separate heads of uh, heads of state, you could call them, or heads of authority. Um, it does make it a bit more of a democracy, or it certainly means that people can have more power uh, over things and voting and so on and so forth like that. And I think that's a good idea. However, I think the way that the world is going, I wouldn't be surprised if they ended up replacing the monarchy, or even worse, just getting the monarchy, getting rid of the monarchy and getting rid of the House of Lords, which there is a big push to do nowadays and ending up with a system similar to the American political system where it is a lot more one person in charge and of course that's a lot easier to take one person in charge to open it up to one world government rather than if you have lots of different heads within a single country so there's a few political thoughts from from Joe's brain there we go um we've got I think we've got 
uh one well we've got one quick question and one slightly long well slightly longer one but i can probably sum up that longer one quite shortly yeah. uh we'll do this longer one but do it shortly um and the question in the sense that why hasn't jesus come back already is he waiting for a just time to keep in line with jesus being perfectly just i would say to that that um god's timing is perfect he's basically the if you look at what's happening currently with the vaccine in america uh it's being mandated for certain uh, jobs um and you see it will be mandatory to remain in employment which again i, I mean there was a uh i can't remember who exactly it was but there was a um a pastor who in america who was saying uh is the is the covid vaccine the mark of the beast and the answer of course is no however he said something very interesting he said the covid vaccine is a dress rehearsal for the real thing which I thought was a very interesting point, especially when we're seeing what's happening in America currently, saying it's going to be mandatory to have a vaccine in order to remain in employment. Because we look in Revelation, it says that no one may buy or sell without the vaccine. Now, how can we buy or sell anything without money? It all links back to jobs and employment and therefore the, the vaccine mandate coming in for certain jobs and sectors and stuff like that. Ultimately, uh, vaccine enforcement um would very probably very strongly be argued against the uh the geneva convention um but well no it'd be the uh it'd be the, the it was part of the world war ii wasn't it about yeah, experimentation and stuff. geneva would geneva would come come to it somewhere but yeah yeah i mean the thing is uh, the 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 vaccine is is not and i can say this with uh, with 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 great certainty, the vaccine is not the mark of the beast because whenever you get a Bible prophecy uh, like the mark of the beast, for instance, it has to match everything absolutely perfectly, just like all the other prophecies did about Jesus. Say right, and while yes, this current vaccine push um, has a lot of similarities to this whole mark of the beast thing, it's not exactly like it. So you have to be very very careful there. However, I would agree with this. Uh, pastor's uh, interpretation as you say as i think it is a scaffolding um or a uh, at least a um prelude a, a a training whatever you want to call it you know it's a it's a basis for which they will start pushing more and more things in the future and many of those things probably won't be the mark of the beast but then that's the point right the mark of the beast is going to be subtle the antichrist is going to be subtle and it will delude many so um you have to be very very watchful and you know on your guard as christians but at the same time make sure that you're not allowing yourselves to get bogged down by uh, things which are clearly not what scripture is indicating and it comes back to this whole thing of uh, when should a christian obey or disobey the government make sure you're not allowing personal opinion and politics to end up affecting your view of scripture um, that is really very important mm. yeah exactly um I think the um, Nuremberg. The thing, Thank you, George. Yes, Nuremberg. exactly, Nuremberg. Um, but yeah, I, mean, I think this. Um, you you just have to be watchful, and I think also as well. What th one thing that I have observed is when you're looking at the world stage currently, setting up for the rapture and the one world government and the Antichrist rising, is that more and more countries are falling into debt and. Uh, 
devolving into this sort of they're spiraling downwards um because of covid because it's had such a detrimental impact to the economy in many places in the world mm-hmm. and because of that that is setting up the stage for scrapping every single world currency and moving to one world currency where there will be no issues like this mm-hmm. there'll be no issues of exchange rates there'll be no issues of having a um you know a, a, like taxes in certain countries it'll all be exactly the same and they won't have to worry about the economy falling because everyone will support each other and that is how they're going to get you it'll be subtle and sweet and that's how they're going to draw you in it'll be slow it'll be it's 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 like uh, the uh, the um uh the uh what's the word the anachronism of um um when you put a frog in boiling frog water in the water yeah, yeah, yeah it jumps straight out however if you put the frog in the water and you slowly 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 turn up the heat the frog will just sit there and boil to death yeah. and that's what satan does he gets in there and he puts little tiny little thoughts in here and there and planting seeds steering things in the right direction and eventually like the snake he'll strike and that's how he gets you subtle and uh, it's it's it, it, that it's I, i've written a, a a presentation on this um about mm. how subtle satan is in uh, scripture and it's it's immense i mean it, you just have to look at the beginning of genesis and how subtle he really is and how wily he is with his words um but yeah i think i think that's, that's sort of I, I mean to link back to your question Gollum, i think that you know god's timing is perfect but the stage has to be set first and the stage isn't quite there yet. No. It's getting there. Yeah, but it's not, for sure. But it's, it's not, not there yet. It's not there yet. No. But keep watching. But don't, like Joe said, don't bog yourself down with it because you'll just spiral downwards and downwards and downwards. Um, I think that's. About, there was one other question I did see. I think it was. Is this is more of a silly one? We can we can um, finish on. We'll finish with. We like to finish. Um, uh, did a T Rex hop like a kangaroo? I'm not being funny. Um, I think I think we can probably say with some degree of certainty that based on the bone structure of the T-Rex, it didn't hop like yeah. a kangaroo. Yeah. If you look at the way that a kangaroo works, uh, particularly with its legs, its feet are actually right, right down the end. What it tends to, uh, the thing which makes it bounce is actually, in a sense, its knees. So they're bent the wrong way, a bit like the way that a dog's or whatever goes. And so uh, it's uh, a completely different structure to what our legs are, in a sense. Also, the legs are bent forward, so that gives itself the spring which propels it forwards, right? When you're looking at a T-Rex, two things. It's a theropod dinosaur, so its legs, like all dinosaurs, A, have to go straight down underneath it, but being a theropod dinosaur, uh, what it means is that its legs are structured in a way so that they propel it forward by using balance of its entire body. So its body is laying, in a sense, flat, head at one end, tail at the other end. Now, now, if you're going to bounce like that, what you will end up is bashing your nose on the ground as you go, right? Whereas the kangaroo stereotypically is very, very upright. So just the whole structure and morphology says that this is a predominantly a walking animal, um, and it is designed to move forward using its tail and its head as balance, right? Now, uh, that obviously leads on to the whole, well, how fast did it run, so on and so forth, you know? Could you outrun a man and it's running alongside the car in Jurassic Park and all this kind of thing? And that leads on to, well, if it couldn't run very fast, then how did it hunt? 
Uh, and then it leads on to the age-old question of, was T-Rex a scavenger or was it a hunter? Of course, the answer is it was neither. It was a vegetarian when God created it, right? So whatever it was actually using um, out of its sharp teeth and claws and so on and so forth to do after the fall, uh, it was a secondary purpose and never the original purpose. So there's another thought for you there. But yeah, I think we can conclusively say from uh, its morphology as well as from its structure, because of course, when you're bouncing, the higher, larger mass you have, the more splat you make when you come back down to Earth. Um, and so the T-Rex having a much, much larger mass just isn't really built for the sort of bouncing kind. So good question, though. It's good to think through these things. Right. I think that's every. Oh, there is one quick question from Stacy. Um, we will finish there. Uh, is the seven-year Luado C thing the Pope is having people sign next month something to watch? Um, assuming that's I think anything that the Pope does is something to watch with great <laughs> carefulness. Um, uh, I don't know. I think it's too early days. It's interesting, isn't it? I've uh, looked into it a, a little bit. Um, I'm not entirely sure what I make of it at the moment. I, I, I suspect it's just one of the, um, uh, shall we say, um, more unusual ideas that he's had in recent years um has the is the pope going to have something to 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 do with the antichrist who knows um he certainly is anti the christ um not the antichrist singular but um it i don't know it's, it's early days i think it'll be interesting to see what happens as we as we go on um but i don't think we can conclusively come to anything yet Anyway, right. I think that's everything. Yes, we've, we've, we're all good. Great stuff. Thanks, everybody, for joining in. Remember to like and subscribe. We've still got 20-odd people watching even now. I know, it's fantastic. We're going on for over two hours. We will see you next week. Obviously, John won't be here. Uh, I will be, and we'll try and get a special guest on. If uh, if not, it's me and Sam again. So Yay, it's me It'll be us I've got two a lads. good idea of some good guests to get on. We've just got to try and get them all arranged and organized. So yes. we'll see. And at some point, I will be back on the Standing for Truth site as well. So Yes, fingers be crossed. Fun. Yes, that would be really good to look out for. Um, but yeah, thank you very much for watching, guys. Uh, thank you for, again, if you're listening on the podcast, thank you so much. Um, you can share that out with your friends. That would be really, really great. Uh, and cheers for sticking all the way to the end. We know it's hard. We know it's a bit of, been a bit of a slog. But thank you so much, guys, for watching and tuning in. And remember to subscribe if you haven't already. Uh, share, the, share the stream with everyone you know. Get the message out there. I think it's been an absolutely fascinating discussion today. It has been mm -hmm. really, really interesting to delve into history uh, and find out just how things, how greatly, um, you know, religion and also politics and things like that can affect the outcome of a country, um, I think is really, really interesting. Um, and I'll try and get the uh, notes, John's notes published yes. uh, and linked on some point tomorrow. So by tomorrow evening um, or 24 hours time from now, basically, because we're all over the world, aren't we? Uh, you should have the notes published and ready and you will notice that it says um part one of three so um we shall have to do many more of these because there's there's so much more that we could have got into yeah exactly and me and john were discussing and creating the notes we often will discuss sermons and stuff together and develop them so we've been working on these for for a while now so um yeah god bless all catch god you bless. later and see you next time